So, uh, where are we? All right, we're in a, in a series. We just started a new series last week. Um, I so appreciate uh, Chris uh, Venard kicking off our series. Um, I called him from Israel. I was like, hey, dude, I'm not going to make it back by Sunday, promotion Sunday, so can you handle it? And I think I called him at like 8 in the morning and over here, and he's like, why are you calling me so early? And I'm like, because I'm in Israel still with COVID, so that's why I'm calling you so early in the morning. Um, so he handled I really appreciate him sharing last week uh, with our new series, and this is called Lies Christians Believe. And he did talk to you guys last week about why is there a jackalope in the background of this logo. And it's because the idea, the author of the book, uh, Shane Pruitt, he kind of uses that image uh, to set up the book, and he talks about how um, a jackalope isn't real. If you say you saw one, like, you're lying, okay? They don't exist. Um, but, but people have created these, like, you know, folklore and, and myths around things like, you know, Bigfoot or, um, you know, things like jackalopes. And, uh, and then people start believing these things, and that's kind of how what happens in Christianity, where you hear a certain statement a lot, and we're going to cover these different key statements that you might hear sometimes people say, and they're really based on a lie, and they're not biblical. And so we're going to look at a different one each week. And so Chris covered the first one last week, and I'll, I'll kind of set up what we're going to talk about today. But there is a children's book that you may have had when you were a kid. Maybe you still read it. I don't know. Uh, but it is called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Anyone had this book when you were a kid or anyone had it read to you? Um, and it's a story about how for one day and for this one boy, everything just goes wrong. He goes to bed with gum in his mouth, only to wake up with gum in his hair. He gets out of bed, trips over his skateboard while getting ready for school or for the day. He drops his sweater in the sink while the water is running. Um, there's no prize in his breakfast cereal. I mean, come on. That's already a bad day right there. And then the dentist discovers a cavity that day, and then his mom serves lima beans for dinner, and there's even kissing on TV right? It is an awful, awful day for this kid. And I know when you, when you think of a book like that, they're just kind of comical examples of, uh, of what can happen in a little kid's world that would make them think, today's been the worst day ever. I mean, um, my daughter is still in the other room, so I can talk about her. I just can't talk about the other one anymore. Um, but my daughter will sometimes say things like, this has been the worst day ever. And I'm like, like, two bad things happened to you. Come on. Come on now. And, uh, but we think of, in a little kid's world, these things can just snowball, and they can see this as, like, the worst day ever. Um, I think of, um, you know, example for me, when I was, the summer after freshman year of high school, um, I remember my friend and I were, like, it was the last day of school, and we're doing the math, and we're, like, this is going to be the greatest summer ever, and here's why. We were like, there's only like 10 weeks in summertime. We thought, I mean, the first week of summer is a basketball camp that we're going to go to. That's going to be great. Then we're going to go on my first ever international mission trip to Barcelona, Spain. That was going to happen. And I was so excited about that. And then it was going to be like another basketball camp at a university out of town. Then it was going to be a soccer camp somewhere. And I was like, that's like half the summer. It's just going to be fun and this amazing experience. And so on the last day of school, I'm at this water park with my class, 
and I'm going down this, this huge like water slide, this tube thing, and I went down like head first. And, uh, and I, the pool's like three feet deep, and I come out of the chute, and somehow um, the force of me just coming out of that tube and I hit the water, it like forced me down really hard, and I just cracked my head on the bottom of the swimming pool, like really bad, like could have broken my neck bad. And I sort of stumble out of the pool, and I've got like blood streaming down my face, and the lifeguard looks at me and is like horrified, like what just happened to you? And, um, and so lifeguard helps me out, and, um, and I've got, it, it hit me so hard, like it, it shaved like a, a line on my head from like here to like right there. I had no hair left, it was just a big scab. My nose was smashed, I just didn't break any bones, but it was just a really scary experience. And uh, go to the hospital, and they're like, yeah, you probably have a concussion, but nothing's broken, so that's good news. And uh, that's how summer started, right? And then um, I'm driving the next day to my first day of basketball camp, thinking I can make it through basketball camp. And I just feel really nauseated, and I realize, like, I got a bad concussion, and I probably can't do basketball camp now. So I sat on the sidelines during the whole first week of camp, uh, feeling like I was going to throw up the whole time. And then I go to Spain on this mission trip. Well, the first day of the mission trip, I find a way to break my arm. And I have to go to a Spanish hospital, get an x-ray, and get a Spanish cast on my arm. And, uh, and the, the summer's not going well at this point. Um, I had to sit out most of the things on the mission trip because I broke my arm while I was in a foreign country. Uh, come back wearing a cast, which also meant I was going to miss the next basketball camp. And I couldn't go that week to the university where we're going to have this basketball camp. And then, um, so everything that I thought was going to happen that summer really ended up not being what it was supposed to be. And I know you've experienced things like that where you have these great expectations followed by huge disappointment. And there is someone in the Bible that it's hard for us to compare our lives to his because his life just seems just so outlandish and such intense suffering. We look at ourselves and we're like, I, I can't hold a candle to that. And his name is Job. And he was this wealthy man, had a large family, and he was a righteous man. He was, had a good reputation, but God allowed Satan to test Job. And Job experienced what could be called the worst day on record in the history of humanity. And we see behind the curtain in the book of Job where Satan approaches God and he says, you know why God, you know why Job worships you, God? Because you've given him all these things, you've given him this great life, you've blessed him greatly. If you hadn't given him these things, he wouldn't worship you. And so God allows Satan to go and test Job and he experiences a day like no other. In one day, Job loses all of his livestock most of his servants, and worst of all, he loses every one of his ten kids. Listen, parents aren't supposed to bury their kids. Kids are supposed to bury their parents. But Job buried every single one of his ten kids. So how does Job respond to this just immense suffering in his life? Well, we would think, of course, that he would you know, turn his back on God and, and maybe shake his fist at God and say, you know, God, how could you do this to me? How could you allow this to happen to me? How can you be a good God if you allowed so much suffering in my life? Someone who has 
had a great reputation and live a righteous life as much as I can up until now. But what Job does when this happens, the, 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 the book of Job tells us that he, he first, he tears his clothes and, and he shaves his head. This is an act of mourning. It's how they would mourn and, and grieve, just intense grieving at, at his loss. And, uh, but then he responds like this. Look at Job chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, where it says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. So Job realizes, like, everything that he has really belongs to God and doesn't truly belong to him. He says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So if just one of the things that happened to Job happened to me, I don't know that I would have that same response that Job has. Because when, for you and I, whenever we suffer, we tend to move towards God or away from God. We, we never just stay in the middle. We never stay neutral. So Job moves towards God. He worships God in the midst of the suffering. And then at the end of the book, it says in Job 42.5, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. So look what suffering did in Job's life. Not only has he now just heard about God, but he, it says, he says, now my eyes see you. There's something about suffering that causes this, I think, in our, in our lives, where we start to see God more clearly. We start to see God differently. Now listen, I know a lot of people when they suffer, they turn their back on God, they maybe curse God, they abandon God. But if we allow it, suffering can have this fruit, this result where we start to see God in a more crystal clear way. And this is what's happening in the life of Job. So before all this suffering, Job knew God and he worshiped God, but um, this intense suffering caused him to see God in this new way, this profound way. Now, again, none of us have known anyone, none of us have, have, have known anyone like, like Job, but you probably have known about people who have suffered greatly and still worship God through that. I think of a woman uh, named Elizabeth Elliot, and this is a woman that her husband was Jim Elliott, and they were going to be missionaries in, uh, I think, Ecuador. And uh, husband, three years into marriage, her husband's killed by um, these warriors that they're trying to reach out to, these, this people group. And so in three years, she loses her first husband. She remarries again later, and she continues being a missionary to the people that killed her husband. And then later on, she remarries, and then that, that husband dies, I think, pretty quickly. I forget how long he lived but, um, as, as her husband, but then he passes away. And then she remarries again. She remarries a, a third time. And so someone who experienced a lot of intense suffering, and at the hands of people, you know, she could think in her mind, she could go, well, we're trying to serve God. We're trying to live righteous lives. We're trying to share the gospel with these people, and they kill her husband. And then she goes back and she continues sharing Christ with these people. And then her next husband passes away. But 
this woman never shook her fist at God. She has some profound writings, and, and, and she's a profound author. And God helped her, I think, see him more clearly as a result of the suffering that she experienced. Shane Pruitt, he says it like this. I believe the Holy Spirit gives people going through extreme suffering a special grace that extends them a hope, peace, and confidence that goes well beyond their natural abilities. Have you ever seen somebody experience suffering and you just go, I don't know how they're making it. I, I can't understand how they're making it through what they're make, getting it through. And it's because God, I think, gives them this special ability that you and I really can't comprehend. And this is also, we see this in the Bible, Isaiah 40, verse 29 says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So someone that, that lacks, God gives them just what they need in that moment. And, and so the, the words of Scripture, they provide hope and comfort for people in these situations. But sometimes we try to comfort people by saying things that aren't even biblical. So here's the, the lie we're talking about today. It's this. God gained another angel today. That's what people say sometimes at funerals or when someone has died. They will say things. Their, their effort is to, con- to comfort, bring comfort to somebody. But what happens is um, it's not really based on truth. It's really based on a lie. So people, when they die, they do not become angels or become like angels. The average daily deaths worldwide is around 150,000. So is God really gaining that many new angels every single day when people suffer and die? No, he's not. This is not a biblical idea. And, uh, and again, this is a lie, and, and lies don't really bring true comfort to us. Um, I can remember my first ever uh, funeral I did um, here at TBC. It was actually, I did it, I think, at a funeral home here in town. And, uh, and I think Gary was out of town, and he was like, hey, you need to do this funeral. And I was like, okay. So I called the family. And it was like one of those worst-case scenarios where the guy's like 22 years old, um, he overdosed on drugs, and he's probably not a Christian. And I'm thinking, okay, that's my first funeral, and I don't even know who the guy is. And uh, meet with the family um, and just did the best I could at trying to do that funeral. And uh, I can still remember people at the funeral that when they would speak of their friend, um, everyone's assumption, of course, is that this person is just now living in the presence of Jesus because, you know, of course they're a Christian because, you know, everyone's a Christian. And I heard things like, you know, see you on the other side or God gained another angel today. I heard those statements um, said at that funeral. But listen, when God created, he creates angels and he created humans. And humans don't turn into angels when they pass away and when they die. It's easy for us to see angels as these like, you know, higher privileged beings and, and in some sense, they are. But did you know the Bible portrays angels as these beings that, that look at you and your relationship with God because of the gospel, and they're jealous of you? Did you know that the Bible portrays angels as beings that look at us, humanity, mankind, and they see the gospel of grace, and they're intrigued by it, almost jealous of it. 
So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now listen to this. Things into which angels long to look. When the angels see God reaching out to us, mankind, in his grace, in his mercy, because of the gospel, angels get jealous. They're intrigued about it. I think it was uh, maybe a Wednesday a while back, I think maybe the upperclassmen guys were having a conversation about, like, angels, I think. I, I, I think this is what took place, and we were talking about this briefly one night. Like, what happens with angels? Like, do angels, can angels repent? Can angels turn and, and turn back to God? Like the fallen angels that we talk about in Scripture. And if you look at Scripture, I think the answer is no, they can't. That once an angel has fallen and rebelled against God, like a third of them rebelled with Lucifer, who became Satan, that once an angel has rebelled against God, that there is no turning back, that there is no grace. There's no mercy. There's no second chance for them, for, for whatever reason. And I can't get into all the theology behind that right now, this morning, but what I want you to hear right now from this stage is that that's why angels look at the grace and mercy offered to humanity and mankind, and they're jealous, and they're intrigued by it, because that's not what they are given or what they are offered from God. Whenever you look at the passages in the Bible that describe the fall of, of Lucifer and, and one-third of the angels, which became demons, it looks like their rebellion is final. Like, there's no turning back from that. And now listen, I am not downplaying the role of angels. They have really, really important roles. So here's some, there's some roles that they play. They're messengers. We see that all throughout the scriptures. They show up and they give a message. They're also, they're protectors. Um, I think most obvious, there's Daniel and the lion's in. You guys talked about that in, throughout Impact Week. But they are protectors. And then thirdly, they are worshipers. We see that throughout Scripture too. The angels are worshipers of God. And then lastly, they're warriors. And there's an example in 2 Kings chapter 19 where this one angel goes and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Like one angel versus 185,000 people and that does not sound like our perception of angels, like a chubby baby angel playing a harp while sitting on a white cloud. That's the image that we have in our minds. That is not how Scripture describes angels. But as great as angels are, God doesn't send Jesus for the angels. Christ came and he, he dwelt among humans to live this perfect life and die a gruesome death in our place. And he offers that grace and mercy to us. And the angels don't get that opportunity. So what does that mean when someone we love dies? We'll look at the next statement here by Shane Pruitt. He says, let the promises of Scripture mend your broken heart, giving you confidence that your loved one, if he knew Jesus, is more alive today than you are. Not as an angel, but rather as a fully glorified human being with a perfect heart 
that is no longer susceptible to sin, a mind that is no longer susceptible to depression, and a body that is no longer susceptible to disease or death. So we have a hard time, I think, believing this because we have a hard time believing that someone who has died is now in the presence of Christ is somehow more alive than we are here today. We can't wrap our minds around that. We often think of life beyond this as some airy-fairy place that's only half real. But it's more real. Like, like we're the ones living in the, the non-reality. It's more real there. But that's only true for those who have died having surrendered to Christ. It's only true for those that have, have died having a relationship with Christ. So when someone... When someone famous dies, what three letters do people post all over social media? What is it? RIP, right? Which means rest in peace. So sadly, this, of course, isn't true for someone who's not a believer. Like, we just throw out that phrase, like, rest in peace, rest in peace. I saw one of those things yesterday on someone in the back of someone's car. It was for someone that they were honoring who had passed away. The person could be a Christian. I have no idea. But we throw that phrase out, rest in peace, for just anybody and everybody. But the reality is that they didn't know Christ. There is no peace. Only way to have peace is to know the Prince of Peace, the one who actually brings about peace between man and God. And if we don't know him, we don't have a relationship with him, there is no rest in peace. For those who don't know Christ, they will spend eternity separated from God in hell, and we forget that, that no one talked more about hell than Jesus. We often think, well, you know, Jesus, I mean, he was this, you know, nice, just didn't really rock the boat, didn't really, you know, talk about hard things, and we, we picture Jesus that way sometimes, but, but no one talked about hell more than Jesus did. The word that he used to describe it was this word called Gehenna, which is a reference to an actual place called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, which is just south of Jerusalem. And I actually realized, I pulled up a map today to see where that was and realized that, that I actually walked through this little valley when I was coming back from the empty tomb on my last day in Israel, that I walked down this road that went right through this valley that was called Gehenna back then, and it's just south of Jerusalem, and it was known as a cursed place. It was where ancient Israelites would, would sacrifice their children to these, these false gods, these pagan gods. And at that time, it was, it was known as the city dump, like the landfill. And Jesus used that reference where there was this destruction and decaying and death. He used that physical reference to refer to this eternal reality for people that don't know Christ, because this was the closest earthly image of what it must be like. And as awful as that sounds, this eternal separation from God, God desires that no one end up there. Because here's what God desires. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, here's what it says. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what does God want? God wants all to come to repentance. He wants all to come to him and desire this relationship with him. 
But, you know, one question people ask sometimes is, you know, why doesn't God just destroy evil in the here and now? Just sort it out in the here and now and take care of it. Well, look at this verse. Maybe he's being patient. Maybe he's waiting. Maybe he's letting us live some life and, and, and waiting for you to, to grow and mature and to see that he really is who he says he is. Maybe he's being patient. Maybe he's waiting for you to repent. Maybe he's waiting for you to surrender. And so that might be why God doesn't sort out all evil in the here and now, because he's a patient God, and he's waiting. And he's waiting for us to come to him in repentance. And again, that is something that he doesn't afford the angels. Do you realize that? Like he is giving you an opportunity that he doesn't even give the angels. And this is why the angels are intrigued. And they look, they look upon the gospel with, with almost like jealousy and intrigue. Now I know whenever we talk about the other side, you know, heaven, it's hard for us to imagine what that must be like. And the Bible doesn't give us lots and lots of details of what that is, but um, I think mostly because it's hard to wrap our, our limited minds around that, what it must be like. But there are some things that God does say about it, and we see that in Revelation chapter 7. Look, look there on the screen. Revelation 7, verse 13, where it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you know what I see in that passage? I see that we should value presence, God's presence, over place. We want to focus so much on the trappings of heaven sometimes. Like, what's it going to be like? But this verse tells us he's going to shelter us with his presence. So it is presence over place. We should value his presence with us more than anything else. And that's what's going to make everything else come true and make everything else a reality. Anything that's seen as a curse here on earth won't have a place in the fully glorified presence of Jesus. No cancer, no disease, no addictions, no injustice, no sadness, no loneliness, no fighting, no divorce, no racism, no murder, no abuse. But all that's going to be true because of the presence of Jesus, the presence of God. But the best thing about heaven is that we're in his fully glorified presence. And uh, if we're going to be comforted in suffering, we will not find it in statements like, you know, God gained another angel. We've got to start seeing this as when someone is called home through death. It's this, a believer is being called home. Like, that's their rightful home. 
That's where they really belong. It's not even here. But it's going to be there in the presence of Jesus Christ, the fully glorified presence of Christ. I want to read to you just a, a little section from Revelation chapter 22, where it describes more of just what this is like. And this is a vision that the Apostle John received from, from God. It says, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, where it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the land through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we're going to have you guys uh, go to